So, um, I'm going to give kind of an awkward disclaimer before we dive in today. Um, if you want to know where we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, uh, we're going to pick up verse 21. Uh, but I'm going to give kind of this uh, a strange disclaimer before we, before we dive in today, um, especially for those who have younger kids in the room. Um, I just want you to know we're going to talk about some, some things today that may be a little bit adult, um, maybe a little mature. Um, I just want to give you a heads up now because we are going to talk about some things that are a little bit grown up. Um, and the reason I tell you that is if you at any point during the service you feel the need to take your kid out of the room that you need to leave, don't let me stop you. Um, we are going to talk about some things that are a little bit difficult today, um, but I think that they are much needed. So I just want to give you that heads up now and understand I'm not offended if you have to leave at any point, but we are going to talk about um, difficult topics like murder and lust today. Um, so those things will come up. It is a difficult topic, but I think it's a necessary one to discuss, especially as God's Word talks about that. All that said, understand, my children are in the room also, and I'm pretty sensitive about what my kids hear, so I will do my best to be sensitive to the fact that we do have a mixed audience in the room, um, and, uh, and try to be uh, sensitive to the fact that you may not be prepared for your kids to hear certain things. So, there's my disclaimer. Feel free, if you need to take your child out at any point during this sermon, I understand, okay? There's my disclaimer. Now, um... What we're going to talk about today um, is straight out of God's Word, and part of the reason I preach the way I do is so that we will cover topics like this. Um, most of you all who have been here for a while, you know I like consecutive exposition of the text. Not only exposition of what the Bible says, so we open the Bible and we say, here's what the Bible says, here's how we apply it today. Not only do I want to exposit the text, um, but also I want to do consecutive exposition because that keeps me honest. Um, honestly, if it were up to me, we wouldn't talk about this passage today. Um, I, I would much rather talk about something that's comfortable, that makes us all feel good. Um, I would much rather do that. Um, everybody likes being uh, the feel-good preacher. As a matter of fact, I talked with, uh, with somebody in the room this week, and uh, I, I said I, I, I kind of wanted to be the hype man. Um, so, you know, I, I, I would love to do that every Sunday and just get everybody all pumped up and ready to roll. Um, but the problem with that is then we skip parts of God's Word, and I don't want to do that. Um, instead, I would like to just continue to work through the text. So today we're going to talk about the difficult subject because that's where we're at in our study of Matthew. So um, we're going to be working through that. Um, and as I was kind of preparing for today, I, I thought I knew what I wanted to do. And I thought I was working through things good until I had a phone call Friday afternoon. Elise is not in here so I can talk about her. Um, she called me to ask me a question about dots. And I said, yeah, well, here's kind of what I'm doing. And because she, she asked, she said, are you busy right now? And I said, never busy, never I work for an hour and a half a week, y'all. Um, it, it's all good. So I was talking to Lisa, and I said, well, I'm kind of trying to write a sermon right now. And she says, okay. Um, I said, but the problem is it's a lot. Because my intention was to take uh, the rest of chapter 5 today. Um, so picking up at verse 21, going through the end. And I said, but it is a lot. And I said, I don't know that I have time for that. And she says, break it up. And I said, well, it all kind of goes together, but it is a lot. And she says, break it up. And I said, okay, well, I suppose I could do that. I hope it goes okay. And she says, break it up. And I said, okay. 
And then I started thinking about this, and really, if we covered the whole thing, if I was going to do it any justice at all, we would be here for a couple hours to walk through this whole text. So what we're going to do today is something that I don't do very often, but I'm going to preach this sermon over two weeks. So you're going to get to hear half of it today, half of it next week. It's really one sermon, but I don't have time to get through it all today, or else y'all are going to lose me like, like well before we're done. So... We're going to do our best to walk through the first half of the text that we have today. And I do believe that the rest of chapter 5, verse 21 to 48, is all one section. I believe that we should look at it as a whole. Because what we see in this text is Jesus starts teaching. Remember last week he talked about, okay, I'm the fulfillment of the law. I didn't come to abolish the law. Instead, in me the law is filled up. Like I'm the completion. It pointed you forward to something and I'm what it was pointing to. My teaching is what it was all pointing to. I'm what the Old Testament was all about. It was pointing you to me. And Jesus is saying this, and then he starts showing how this is really practical, how this plays out in our everyday life. And we see that from verses 21 to 48 of chapter 5. Okay, so we see how that plays out in our lives. And what he does is he gives these six things. Um, I, I love this word. There's six antitheses. Um, it's fun to say, right? Um, he contrasts these six ideas is what he does. He says, you've heard it said, but I say to you, and he contrasts these teachings. Um, and really, we should see them all as a whole. We should see that how they all work together. Um, but really, I don't have time to get to it all today, so we're going to look at the first half of that today, and we're going to look at the next half of it next week. So you all got to just stay in suspense for the exciting conclusion next week, right? Okay. Y'all are like, Jared, whatever. We don't. Just move on. Okay. Well, um, I thought about how to introduce this text also, and I thought I just gave a disclaimer about how it's going to have adult content. Like, I don't think I could put a G rating on this sermon, so um, <laughs> I don't know that I need a better introduction than that. I hope that draws you in a little bit to be curious about what's going to be said. So would you all stand with me as we read God's Word today? Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 21. I'll be reading from the Christian Standard Bible like always. So here we go. It says, as Jesus is speaking, he says, You have heard that it was said to our ancestors, Do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. Whoever says, You fool, will be subject to hellfire. So if you are offering your gift on the altar, and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled with your brother or sister, and then come and offer your gift. Reach a settlement quickly with your adversary while you're on the way with him to court, or your adversary will hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the officer, and you will be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will never get out of there until you have paid the last penny. You have heard it said, or you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go, to, to go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. But I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife, except in a case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Thank God for his word, and you may be seated. <clears throat> you 
Now, before we jump into this, we need to remember what we talked about last week. And I already touched on this briefly. Jesus steps onto the scene here and he begins teaching about his relationship to the Old Testament, right? He says, I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them, but that they might be fulfilled. Jesus says that I am their fulfillment. He says they were all pointing to me. And now he's moving into how this plays out practically. What does this really look like? And as he does, he doesn't just say, well, the law says to do this, so do it. He explains, he shows how that applies to us. He goes a little bit deeper, and more than that, he shows how the Old Testament had been grossly misinterpreted. How they had misunderstood not only what the law said, but how the law was applied. Like the intention of the law was different than what everybody was looking at in Jesus' day. And that's where he steps in and gives these six antitheses, or these six contrasts. And he starts saying, you've heard it said this, but I tell you this. Okay, in the I, in every single one of these, uh, these contrasts, he's saying, but I tell you this. What he's saying is, I have the true meaning. Remember, I'm the fulfillment of these things. It's about me. What the Old Testament said, these rules and these regulations that the Old Testament put, put, or put in front of you, says they were pointing you to me and the work that I would do. They were all pointing you to the person and the work of Christ. And Jesus is stressing that this is all about me. And as he does, what he starts spelling out is something that was radically counterculture. Um, that's the title of this series. And this sermon, like the Jesus preached, the Sermon on the Mount, was radically countercultural. It was not even close to what people were seeing in their day. And Jesus says, look, here's the way you understood this text. Here's the way you understood the Old Testament. But I tell you, it's something completely different. It's something that was very different from what you understood before. And what I want us to see is that Jesus gives this, this view of morality, of this view of right and wrong, this view of what it meant to follow the Old Testament, follow the law, and he says it is very different from what you understand. And the reason I think that this is so important today is because I think a lot of us have a view of what the Bible teaches. I think a lot of us have a view of what right and wrong are. But I think a lot of us are guilty of doing the exact same thing the Pharisees in this day were doing. Building up these heavy burdens, spelling it out and trying to say, well, this is right, but I could get away with it if I do this. I think a lot of us are guilty of that, and I know because I would be guilty of that. So as Jesus starts teaching this, he starts showing this radically countercultural view of morality and of the Old Testament. So I want us to see how he changes that view, how he comes in and he gives us the true meaning of what the Old Testament pointed us to. Right? And the first thing he does is he stresses the importance of reconciliation. He stresses the importance of reconciliation. Verse 21, he says, You have heard that it was said to our ancestors, Do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. Right? Now, he's not wrong, is he? He says, You've heard it said to our ancestors, those people before when the law was given, you heard that it was said, Do not murder. And I hope you know that is from the Old Testament. Like, that's there. When Moses is giving the law that he receives from God in Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, the entire verse, I'm going to read it to you. Are you ready? Do not murder. That's the verse. You've heard that it was said? Well, yeah, it's because it was said. It was there as Moses gave the law to their ancestors. Okay, now we all know what it means to murder, right? We all know what that means. I don't have to explain what murder is, do I? Now, I know that there are nuances around it, like, okay, what about in this crazy circumstance or that crazy circumstance? And we could spend all day talking about, well, is this right or is this wrong? We could spend all day doing that, and I don't, I don't care. Let's just talk about, generally speaking, physically harming another human being is wrong, right? 
Wrong right? That's a sentence. That makes sense, doesn't it? You all understood. It's wrong. We know that harming another human being is wrong. And why is it so wrong? Well, we actually got to talk about this at Discover last week as we talked about what it means to bear the image of God. Right? God creates man in his image. So whenever we physically harm another human being, we are harming someone who bears the image of God, which is a sign of disrespect to God himself. Showing a lack of value for God's image. So of course that's wrong. We know that just instinctively, right? I think about whenever I was a kid. I think about whenever I was just a little guy. Like, what was the worst thing somebody could have done? It was murder, right? I had three brothers, and we would we'd get to a fight, and it's like, well, it's not like I murdered anybody or anything. Right? We don't have to tell them. Like, we just instinctively know harming another human being is wrong. It doesn't take somebody who's very, very well versed in the scriptures to know harming somebody isn't the right thing to do. Okay? We just kind of naturally know that. And Jesus says, you've heard it said to our ancestors, do not murder. Okay. Good. Everybody seems to know that. He says, but that's not the full extent of that law. That's not the full extent of what God was teaching you when he said, do not murder. He says in verse 22, he says, but I tell you, but I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. And two things just happened as he said that. Two things happened. First, Jesus just placed his authority on the same plane as Scripture. Like, same level. He says, you've heard it said, do not murder. Remember, that's when Moses gave the law from God. God spoke through Moses, says, do not murder. And Jesus says, that's true, and I tell you this. He says, my words are on the same plane. They have the same weight, the same authority as Scripture. Now, we need to remember who's Matthew writing to. You all ought to know this at this point. First century Jewish audience, primarily. First century Jewish audience. And as Matthew records these words of Jesus, he says, you've heard it said this, but I tell you this. These Jewish people know the weight of this word. Like, no, no, no. That's the law given through Moses. That's important. Like, that's the word of God himself. But I say to you, Jesus says, they recognize just how radical what Jesus was saying. They, they recognize how radical that was. Like, Jesus' words are on the same plane as God's word. Yeah, that's what Jesus is getting at here. But then he goes on and he says, just, just as murder has a consequence, anger against your brother or sister has the same consequence. The same consequence, right? It's both of them. Both of them. He says, you murder someone, you'll be subject to judgment. You have anger against your brother or sister, you will be subject to judgment. They have the same consequence. And this is actually a legal term. Um, it means to be taken before the judge. It's a, a, a legal term. So it's like you go to court before the judge. And just so you all know, I don't know if you all have ever been angry with your brother or sister before, but I sure have, which means you're guilty. You're guilty. You're going to be found guilty before the judge. Okay, um, actually, I, I like the way John, the Apostle John said it whenever he wrote his, uh, his letter, 1 John. Uh, 1 John 3.15, it says, Everyone who hates his brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. Very clearly, you have anger against your brother or sister. If you hate your brother or sister, you are guilty of murder. 
right? But we just instinctively know that that's like the worst thing that you could possibly do. You don't have to tell my kids that. They know that. So regardless of whether you physically wounded someone or you've only harbored anger or hatred against them, you're guilty. Now, does that mean that if, if you get angry with someone, you might as well go ahead and hurt them because you've already committed the crime? No, please don't do that. Um, because then you're going to go to court and you're going to be like, well, my preacher said this and I don't want to be implicated. So um, leave me out of it. But the point is this, okay? The point is this. The result is the same. In terms of our judgment before God harboring anger against a brother or sister is sin, just as the physical act of harming somebody would be sin. The, re- the results are the same. You're guilty. Now, Jesus goes on to show how insults against a brother or a sister or harsh words toward them, they're a manifestation of anger against the person, right? Um, the, he gives this first insult, and he says, he says, if you say to your brother or sister, Raka, um, if you're an NIV reader, um, or if you're an NASB reader, or I guess a CSB reader, it says insults. If you read out the New American Standard, uh, I like this one. It says, you good for nothing. If you say that to your brother or sister, um, then you're guilty. Um, in our vernacular today, it's like calling somebody a blockhead or an idiot. Okay? So it's like if I looked at somebody and I just flat out insulted them and said, you idiot. Now, please, uh, that's not even the disclaimer I gave you. I don't want my kids calling people stuff like that, so maybe I ought to watch it. But then he has the first insult he gives, and he says the second insult, it's just, you fool. It's like calling somebody stupid. Again, we see these insults being thrown from the person who's harboring anger against their brother or sister. And he says that all of these offenses, they have serious consequences. They have very serious consequences. He says that they will be subject to the court where, again, by the way, you will be found guilty. And then the last one, he says that they will be thrown into hellfire. Y'all, I don't, listen, you don't have to have the doctrine of hell perfectly figured out to know hellfire, that's not good. Like, I hate to oversimplify, but that's not what you want. It's not what you want. Literally, what, what the Greek says, it says that you will be thrown into the fiery Gehenna. Okay, and I think that this kind of builds the picture a little bit. It says the fiery Gehenna. And in Gehenna, Gehenna was a valley outside of Jerusalem to the south. It was also known as the Valley of Hinnom. Um, and it basically became a landfill where people um, took the garbage of the city and it would be dumped there. Okay, and before that though, back in Jeremiah chapter 7 verse 31, this is a place where we see some wicked people taking their children out and they're sacrificing them to pagan gods here in this valley, which is why it became the dump. Historians actually suggest that there would often be fires burning out in the garbage heaps that, uh, that would have smoke rising from them that would be visible from the city. And by the time Jesus came around and he was teaching this, um, this place Gehenna, this fiery Gehenna, was, was symbolic of a place um, was symbolic of a place of eternal torment where people would be cast from the presence of God. That's what this was. And Jesus says. If you harbor anger or hatred, if you throw insults back and forth at your brother, this is what you deserve. The fiery Gehenna. Look, I don't want us to make any mistake. Harboring anger or hatred for your brother or sister leads to the same eternal consequence as murder, namely hell. I mean, we've all heard the saying, I know because I used it here a while back. You know, we've all heard, don't get mad, I don't get mad, I get even. Right? You've all heard it. I hope you don't use that. Please don't use that. That's awful. That cannot be our attitude as the church. Cannot be our attitude as the church. But see, here's the beauty of this thing. 
Jesus says, look, hatred for your brother, anger against your brother is a real problem. He says it's, a very, it's got very serious consequences. Um, but then he goes on. See, we're really good at identifying the problem. We're often terrible about providing a solution. Um, Jesus provides the solution, though. First of all, he just said, I came to fill up the law, and the, the law and the prophets. In other words, Jesus is saying, I am the answer you need. I'm the one that it all pointed to, the one who perfectly fulfills the Old Testament. Come to me. But he goes on to show us how we can live this kind of life. He says, he says this through two examples. The first example in verses 23 to 24, he says, you go to worship at the temple, right? You're bringing your offering to the temple, and you take it. And while you're there, you realize, hey, my brother has something against me. I have this strife between my brother and I. He says, leave your offering and go reconcile with your brother. Just leave it there and go get right with your brother. Go fix the problem. See, our worship to God is only true worship if we desire what God desires and pursue what God pursues. Right? You all see how that works? If we're really pursuing Jesus, then our desires will look like his. And you know what he wants? He wants reconciliation with us. So much so that he came took on flesh, died a painful and brutal death even though he was without sin. He desperately wants reconciliation with us so that he will go to extraordinary lengths and we need to go to those lengths also. Um, to put this into our terms, because I think it's one thing to say, well, just leave it at the, leave it at the temple, like leave it there whenever you go to worship. Um, John Stott, I'm going to keep on referencing him throughout this series, but um, John Stott, he wrote, if you are in church in the middle of a service of worship, and you suddenly remember that your brother has a grievance against you, leave church at once and put it right. Do not wait, do not wait till the service has ended. Seek out your brother and ask his forgiveness. First go, then come. First go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your worship to God. Okay, to put this in our terms, if you all realize somebody has something against you, get up and leave. Go fix it. Like, I'm not going to be offended by that because what I know is that God's word shows that we need to be made right with our brothers and sisters. So go and fix it. Like, honestly, if there were like a handful of people right now that got up and walked out because they had to go reconcile with their brother, I'm not going to be offended. I'm probably going to start celebrating that. Like, we need to get right with our brothers and sisters. Jesus says that it is of incredible importance. This is significant. Last week, I criticized a preacher for saying that we need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. Um, and I, look, as much as I wanted to criticize him, um, I, I will give him credit. I remember I was listening to him once, and he was talking about this passage. And he said something that changed my view, actually, so I'll give him some credit here. Um, I, I remember he was talking about this passage, and he said that in some sense, our devotion to God would be measured by our devotion to one another. And he's right, our devotion to God can, in some sense, be measured to, by our devotion to one another. Do we love people? Because Christ loved us. And if we're supposed to be following after him, we will love one another. And Jesus demonstrates this reality here. He says, worship will wait. Go get right with your brother. But, notice this. This example actually isn't if you are angry against your brother, is it? That's not the example he gives here. Instead, this example is when somebody else is angry with you. And that's important. See, we're like, okay, I got anger. Well, okay, maybe I ought to go fix this. Well, that's one thing, and you're right, you should. But Jesus says, what if your brother has something against you? Go and fix it. Do your part. Try your best to reconcile with your brother or sister, even if you're not upset about it. 
You be the peacemaker. You be the one that starts the reconciliation. Don't wait for them to do it because they may never do it. You be the one to make it right. Don't wait. Go and fix it. See, I've watched a lot of people who are like, well, yeah, I know this person's got this or that against me. And it's like, well, I'm going to put this religious gloss over the top. And I don't want to stir anything up. I'm just, I'm comfortable because we have peace right now. Because we're not talking. That's not the goal. The goal is to be in fellowship, to be in relationship with one another as we're in relationship with God. Like, we should be the one pursuing that. Now, is it easier just to sweep it away and just be like, okay, well, it's fine over there. Nobody's, nobody's yelling at each other. Nobody's insulting one another right now. I know they're mad at me still, but it's okay because we're just not talking. No, that's not what we're supposed to do. Be the peacemaker. Go and try to be reconciled with your brother or sister. That's what Jesus is calling for here. And that's the first example he gives. He gives this example of how we need to be made right with a brother or sister. And then he gives a second example in verses 25 and 26. And I think it's interesting that first it's a brother or sister. In 25 and 26, it's an adversary. He says, if you're on your way to court against your adversary, settle before you get to the court. And if you don't, eventually you're going to be thrown into prison and you're never going to get out because your debt is so great. Now, if we just happen to be talking about our debt before God, like if we're just saying, okay, like I have some debt that needs to be paid before God, you know how long before that's paid off? It's never going to be paid off. And if you don't get out of prison until it's all paid, that means you never get out. You all picking up on that? Like it's impossible to get past that. But see, I think the point is this, that these examples, these examples show us that we need to keep from letting anger settle and causing strife between you and other people. Do everything you can to bring about reconciliation between people and do it quickly. Jesus stresses urgency. He says, if you're at the temple and you realize this, go fix it. While you're still on your way to court with your adversary, fix it. Don't wait. Fix it now. Do everything you can. And again, I've watched too many seemingly mature Christians fail to seek out reconciliation because it's easier just to avoid the conversation. Like, it'll all work out in the end. Will it, though? Honestly, if you just ignore it, it's not going away. It's not going away. Jesus says, don't always take the easier way. Instead, he says, take up your cross and follow me. And sometimes that means it's going to hurt. See, the world may be okay with getting angry and cutting somebody out of their lives, but we as followers of Jesus must pursue a radical sense of reconciliation. And Jesus stresses that importance here. So he stresses the importance of reconciliation. Then Jesus stresses the importance of purity. And here's where things get fun, right? Y'all excited for this? Oh, yeah, it's good stuff. Oh, I love it. Verse 27, it says, You have heard that it was said, and again, Jesus quotes straight out of Exodus 20, this time verse 14, he says, Do not commit adultery. Do not commit adultery. And again, Jesus clarifies what the Old Testament taught with this command. And he says, It is, again, weightier than just not acting on desires. It's bigger than that. It's bigger than just the physical act. Instead, Jesus says that everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, I always think it's funny whenever women are like, well, I'm off the hook here because it says whenever he looks lustfully at her. Well, guess what? Um, there are some scholars who actually think that this language might have to do with the man causing her to look lustfully at him. So, yeah, women, you're not off the hook. Sorry. Um, so anyway, this definitely cuts both ways. Now, Again, I'm not saying, and I don't believe Jesus was saying, that if you look, you may as well have done it. That's not what he's getting at. That's not the point. 
Instead, Jesus is showing the more complete intent of the law. The law wasn't just there to keep people from acting on impulses. It was to encourage proper desire. To encourage proper desire. To get them to move the right direction. Jesus says, don't commit adultery, but lustful looks make you just as guilty before God as committing the act does. Now, I want to be careful. Again, because in stressing the abuses of physical intimacy, the church has often and unintentionally labeled physical intimacy as a bad thing. Which it's not. It's not. Physical intimacy between a husband and wife is a good gift from God. Okay? So I don't want to label that at all. As a matter of fact, not only is it a good thing, it's necessary for the continuation of life. Like, it's good. However, God also tells us that there is a right and a wrong way to experience life here on earth, doesn't he? There is a right and a wrong way. I'll give you an example, and this one's easy to pick up on. Food is a good thing. I like food. It's a gift from God. I'm very thankful for food. As a matter of fact, our bodies need it. So we need food. But gluttony is not a good thing. Overindulgence in food is not good. Okay? Now, physical intimacy is good. Adultery is not. Are you tracking with that? So this is a gift from God when exercised in its proper confines. Okay? Now, for that reason, when it comes to adultery... Jesus calls for extreme and immediate action. He doesn't say, sit by idly, it'll all be okay. Instead, in verse 29, he says, If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better to lose one part of the body than for the whole body to be thrown into hell. Radical action. Y'all hear that? If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Do away with it. Now, am I telling you you need to literally physically mutilate yourself? No, please don't do that. And again, if you do, don't say the preacher told you to, because that's not my point. I don't think that was Jesus' point. Now, there are some throughout church history who have taken that kind of action and literally mutilated themselves in a number of ways. And if you've got questions about that, I've got stories to tell, but I think it's inappropriate to share some of these details today. But Jesus here, I believe what he's doing is he's using hyperbole. Uh, You all familiar with the term hyperbole? Some of you? Right? So he's saying something with intended shock value. Something that would clearly get somebody's attention. Now, he doesn't mean that we literally mutilate ourselves. Instead, he's saying, look, this is serious. This is so serious that it's almost as if you're cutting off a part of your body. He's using this strong language to grab people's attention and show how important this is. So Jesus is saying, to avoid breaking this commandment not to commit adultery, to follow after me, Jesus says, we need to recognize that these things, that looking lustfully leads to sin. It is sinful in and of itself. He says, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. In other words, what he's saying is, don't look at those things that cause you to sin. Do away with them. It's better to forego experiencing some of those things. Do away with it. If your hand causes you to sin... Don't do those things. Instead, cut that part of your life clear out because it's more important than to to follow Jesus than just to miss an experience. Those experiences are not as important as following. Jesus later uses a a, a similar example. He uses the foot in Mark chapter 9, verse 45 as the example. And in other words, what he's saying is cut the foot off. Don't go. Don't go to those places that would lead you to sin. And the point of all these are, if... There is some time that there are things, whew, 
If there is something that causes these desires to well up in you, then avoid the things that cause them. At extreme lengths, avoid those things that cause these sins. I'm going to give you an example here from my own life. Um, Now, again, um, this is not something that I believe is an unforgivable sin, right? But I think it's something that uh, um, many men struggle with. As a matter of fact, I would argue that virtually all men struggle with this. Um, And this is something that is difficult to talk about. But I'm going to talk about pornography um, for just a minute because of the prevalence it has in our culture. Um, It is ridiculous how accessible it is in our culture today. Um, I, I was thinking this through, and I, I looked up some statistics. According to Barn, the Barna Group, who do um, research, and a group called Covenant Eyes, they, they did this study, and they found that there are around 42 million active pornographic websites today. 42 million sites. That's crazy to me. And while the statistics showed that a much smaller percentage of men and women in the church use pornography than people in our culture at large, the disparity was not near as stark as we would hope. It was much closer than we would hope is what I'm getting at. And just so you know, it's not just a man-woman problem like I mentioned just a minute ago. The number of women who actively use pornography on a regular basis is growing faster than the number of men who do this on a regular basis. And it's actually starting to even out somewhat. So it's not just a male problem. It is a human problem. <clears throat> While the statistics do show that there is um, a, a, a disparity between those in the church and out of the church, I thought that this was really interesting. Young adults, ages 18 to 24, they seek out or view porn more often than any other generation throughout history. And part of that is accessibility. Part of that is accessibility. But that's not the only issue at play here. There is an overall shift that our culture has taken on pornography. Um, and it's a real problem. Um, authors of this study, they said perhaps the biggest standout data point was the fact that teens ages 13 to 17 and young adults 18 to 24, so ages 13 to 24 here, they believe that not recycling is more immoral than viewing pornography. Y'all hear that, right? Not recycling. And I'm not here to talk about recycling. I don't, recycle, don't recycle. That's not the argument I'm trying to make today. Should we preserve our earth? Sure. Sure we should. Not recycling, viewing pornography. They're saying not recycling is far worse than viewing pornography. That's 13 to 24 year olds. That's young people who are coming up, becoming adults. Saying it's not a problem. And by the way, I looked at the percentages. It's not even close. It's like 54% to 38%. Not even close. Y'all, there's this overall shift in our culture that says, looking lustfully, it's not a problem. It's not a big deal. It's okay. Jesus steps onto the scene here and he says, no, no, no. It's the same as adultery. Now, the majority of these people also said that it would be wrong to cheat on your spouse. Which I find a little ironic because according to Jesus, you're just as guilty if you do one as the other. They are both wrong. Now, the reason I said that we need a countercultural view of morality is because that's what Jesus just pointed to, and we can see the same thing is true of us today. Um, but so practically, what, is this, what does this look like? What, like, okay, so he says, cut off, cut off your hand, gouge out your eye, 
Okay, so what does that practically look like since we just talked about this? Well, again, I'm going to give you an example from my own life, something I've had to remove. You all know I, I carry a smartphone, right? It's right here, okay? Every week, for some reason, I put it on the pulpit. Every week, I carry that thing with me everywhere. It sits next to me wherever I go to bed. I've got my smartphone. And i got a bunch of apps on my phone, just like everybody else does. And I feel like I don't even know what half of them do anymore because I don't use most of them. I need to clean up my home screen. But there's all these apps on my phone. I've had to remove a few of them because they've caused problems or because I've seen that they could potentially cause problems. Um, I'm going to pick on one app in particular. There's a messaging service called Snapchat. How many of you are familiar with that one? Understand, I'm not here to wage war on Snapchat. That's not my goal. There may be people who use it, and that's perfectly fine. Whatever. That's not my point. My point is, I've deleted Snapchat from my home screen. I have had to cut it off and throw it away. See, there were some stories on there that I like to watch. I thought, I, thought, I think fail videos are funny. You all can judge me for that if you want to. I think it's funny to watch people jump off the high dive and do belly flops. I think that's funny. Okay, so I liked watching fail videos, all right? So I would watch those on there. I would watch Dude Perfect because I thought that was really cool. So I would watch these videos on there, and my daughter thought that it was really cool too, and we'd sit there and we'd watch these videos together. I've had to delete it because I noticed that on that feed, the suggested pages became increasingly pornographic. They're saying, hey, you're watching this. Watch this too. By the way, they target you based off of your age and your gender. Did you know that? You're being targeted with these things. Now, again, I'm not here to wage war against Snapchat. That's not my point. My point is this. It's better to forego a messaging service on your phone than it is to be cast into hell. That may seem obvious, but how many of us practice that? I mean, there are things that I don't want to get rid of. I remember there used to be an app on my phone, another one that caused problems. And my brothers and I, we would look at these funny memes all the time, and we'd send them back and forth until things became increasingly pornographic. And I said, I can't. It has to go. Because purity is more important, according to Jesus, than these experiences in this world. It's more important. It's got more weight to it. Now, again, I I should probably tell you, I don't believe that I'm super sensitive to things either. And I don't think I'm overreacting to these things. Because some people could just be like, yeah, okay, the preacher has to say that. No, I I don't believe that's the case. Um, I just think that we need to be cautious. We need to be aware of what's going on. And if our eye is leading us to sin, do away with the thing that you're looking at. Do away with it. It's not important. Do away with those things. Now, Jesus moves on and he ties this next part right to the topic of adultery. And we're going to talk about marriage more as we get deeper and deeper into Matthew. So I'm going to be pretty brief on this part today. Um, but Jesus does talk about marriage and divorce here. Verse 31, he says, It was also said, tying it back to the concept of, of lusting being adultery. Um, so he says, It was also in every other one of these things. He says, You have heard that it was said, or you heard that it was said to our ancestors. He says something along those lines. In this one, um, in verse 31, he says, It was also said. That word also is important because it ties it back to his last idea. He says, You have heard it said. Whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. And basically what the culture, including the religious culture around him, said, you can divorce your wife for any reason you want. You don't like the way that she did her hair today? You can divorce your wife. Just give her a written notice of divorce. Okay? You just, I mean, just make sure you let her know that you're divorcing her. And make sure you let any future husbands that she might have also know that she is legally divorced. And then it's okay. That's what the culture was telling them. Even the religious culture. 
But Jesus says, everyone who divorces his wife except in a case of sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, again, I want to tread lightly here because I know that there are many people even in our room this morning who have been affected by divorce in one way or another. And I'm not here to say that if you have experienced the ramifications of a divorce or you have been in a divorce, that there is no hope for you because that's not true. Okay? There is absolutely hope and there is forgiveness in the gospel, in Christ. But I will say this. Divorce is not God's intent. It is not God's intent for marriage. Well, the reason is because of what marriage represents. Again, at Discover last week, we talked about God's intent for marriage. It's a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of Christ's love for the church and the church's submission to Christ. That's what marriage is supposed to be. We find that in Ephesians 5, so if you want to, go read it. But to break the marriage covenant is to suggest that Christ would break his covenant with the church. And that doesn't happen. Ever. Okay? The culture today recognizes the pain associated with divorce, which is great. But again, the data suggests that our culture is moving away from the traditional understanding of purity and marriage. And after doing some research on marriage, divorce, and remarriage, um, it led one researcher named George Barna of the Barna Group. Okay? He, he said this, and I think that this is really telling. He said, there no longer seems to be much of a stigma attached to divorce. It is now seen as an unavoidable rite of passage. Interviews with young adults suggest that they want their initial marriage to last, but they are not particularly optimistic about that possibility. Look, whenever I married my wife, I said, I will love you, I will be your husband until death do us part. That's not hyperbole. I literally believe that to be true. That's what God intends for marriage. For life. And if we want to follow Jesus, then we must have a countercultural view of morality, which includes our view of reconciliation, of anger and hatred against our brothers and sisters. It has to include our view on purity in marriage. And Jesus stresses the importance of these things here. So what? Well, today, every single one of us must decide, will we continue on holding on to the anger that we have against our brother or sister, or going on allowing someone else to hold on to a grudge against us, we have to decide if we're willing to do that. That's not what Jesus wants for us. Instead, we also have to decide, could we possibly be the one that pursues reconciliation with our brother and sister, striving to make peace with others? Will we be that person? Will we be the one who initiates it? And if we aren't willing to be reconciled with other men, then I would just ask you, are we fooling ourselves? Like, if we say, oh yeah, I have hatred for this person. You don't know what they did to me, Jared. You don't know how much they've wronged me. Okay, well you can hold on to that. But are you fooling yourself? Because do you realize what you've been forgiven of? Like, it all flows from the grace that Jesus showed us. He says, I came to fill up the Old Testament. I came to fill up the law and the prophets. I'm its fulfillment. Do you realize that you've been forgiven of much more than you've ever been wronged? Do you realize that? The hurt you've caused to God, the harm you did in his direction is far greater than anything anybody's ever done to you. Far greater. And if we're following after Jesus, we'll pursue this radical sense of reconciliation, striving to make things right. And second, are you willing to take steps, great or small, to pursue a countercultural view of purity? Are you willing to do what it takes to pursue this picture of purity? 
Um, you know, we could just continue doing the same things that the culture around us does. We could. But that's not what Jesus says we should be pursuing. And if we're following him, that's certainly not how he lived. So are we willing to look different? And look, if we struggle with a particular sin, we'll find a way to cut out the root. And we looked at, Matt, we looked at Nehemiah just a few months ago. We walked through that book. And one of the things I encouraged you to do was to post a guard at the low spots. You all know we have weaknesses in our lives. All over the place, we have weaknesses. And whenever we identify those weaknesses, we need to find a way to keep ourselves accountable. That might mean calling a brother or sister and say, hey, I need your help. I need somebody to keep me accountable. I've had to do that. I have to do that regularly, actually. Absolutely, we need to do that. Find a brother or sister. God put us in a church so that we don't have to do this in isolation. There are people who would love to help you, encourage you. For some of you, it might mean something different, but post a guard. Find a way to cut out the disease and place guards so that the disease doesn't come back. Regardless of the tangible steps that we need to take to make this happen, we must be willing to go against our culture to follow after Jesus. Must be willing to. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave it at this. Jesus came and he says, I fill it all up. It's all fulfilled to me. And I know we just talked about some things that are kind of heavy um, that many of you, I imagine, struggle with. You know what? I, I don't want to make it out as if we have to pick up and do this on our own because like Corey just pointed out a minute ago, you can't complete the work that was started in you on your own. The Bible says, Paul actually rebukes the Galatians. He says, so what was started by the Spirit are you now trying to carry out in your flesh? No, of course not. We find the hope, we find the way forward through Jesus, in Jesus. doesn't mean we don't use the church because Jesus, you know where he's found? In his church, in his people. So absolutely use those things. Find help, find that way forward. I'm going to close with... Uh, with a quote from, from Stodigan. He said, We have to decide, quite simply, whether to live for this world or the next, whether to follow the crowd or follow Jesus Christ. What will you choose? Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, I thank you for this word. Um, I thank you that you've called us to live a countercultural life. Lord, that not only did you call us to live that way, but then you've shown us how to do it through your word and through your son the incarnate word. So, Father, we, we thank you for not just saying, hey, go do this, go do that. Instead, you not only completed that on your own, you also gave us a way forward through that. Uh, so, Father, today I'm thankful for your word. I'm thankful for the challenge it is to me and to, to, to the church family that you've made me a part of. Lord, and I pray that people would look at Christian Fellowship Church and they would say, yeah, they're different. Um, Lord, I don't want to be the same as everyone around us because I don't believe you were the same as everyone around you. Instead, Lord, help us to live this countercultural life. Teach us what it means to be your followers. Um, and Father, whenever we don't do it perfectly, because we won't, I pray that we wouldn't turn to picking ourselves up. Instead, we would turn to you and we would say, God, help us. We would look to you for the answers and for the forgiveness that we need. Um, so, Father, uh, above all else, I just want to thank you today for Christ, uh, for sending Jesus, for taking on flesh and living the life I couldn't live, dying the death that I deserved, and then being raised to new life, winning victory over death, over hell, over sin, my sin. Lord, and I praise you for what you've done. Um, help us to live faithfully, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.